Well, welcome. My name's Robert. Again, um, I'm the lead pastor. I want to welcome you. We've been in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which has some uh, very interesting passages, don't you agree? Every week, it's, it's like a new opportunity to dive into some, I think, some tough scripture for most of us when we read these kinds of things. So you may be wanting to grab a Bible from the, the, the ground there underneath the, the chairs or maybe on your phone looking for Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Um, you, can, you can find it in the table of contents if, if uh, you don't know where Deuteronomy is. It's okay. A lot of folks come in that, that are new to the Bible, so welcome. I've been saying that Deuteronomy is a kind of a pregame talk, a pep talk to get Israel ready to engage in the conquest of the promised land that's been given to them by God. And it's going to require them, the, the text actually uses the word dispossess. They're going to dispossess the Canaanites. They're going to take the land away from the Canaanites, and they're going to establish a new nation, the nation of Israel, in place of the Canaanites. And part of how they're going to dispossess the Canaanites is they're going to kill them. Uh, and, and this begs a question, and, and we talked about this some last week, if you were here, why Israel? Why Israel? Why is God showing so much favor to Israel, letting them go in and start this new nation. And, and we found that it's because God loves them. This is what we got from last week, Deuteronomy 7. He says, I've set my love on you. And we talked about the absolute, unconditional covenant love of God for Israel. And it helped us understand the why behind God's choosing of Israel and establishing of Israel. But then it starts to beg another question. We start to think, how can you do that, God? Sure, why you did, you said you love them and you were keeping a promise to them, but how could you do that? Because Israel doesn't seem to be much better than the Canaanites. They seem to be just as immoral, they, they seem to be idol worshipers themselves, and so you, you're taking one bunch of immoral idol worshipers and you're using them to, to push out another bunch of idol worshipers? God, how can you do this? And especially with all the talk about being holy and having these commands and, and, and wanting people to obey the commands. Like, how, how, God, how can you do this? And so we're going to find that out in this text. How is it that a holy God can give mercy to Israel and allow them to establish themselves as his people in the nation of, of Israel? So let's take a look. Deuteronomy 9. Uh, verse 3, I'll start there, is a recap of the conquest. Right? It says, Know therefore today that he goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them, subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. This over and over in, in the book of Deuteronomy, he, he reestablishes these terms. You go in, you destroy them. Uh, God is the one that's actually delivering the judgment. He's just using you to do it. And over and over, Moses is, is saying that. And so I think our knee-jerk reaction to that is that, well, Israel must somehow deserve the, the land that they're being given. There must be something about them. They must be better people. They must be more ethical or religious or or, or loving, or generous, or something. There's, there's got to be some way that they are getting the promised land fair and square. And that conversation also is in our own hearts, right? 
Like we have this conversation inside ourselves oftentimes. We make an A in a class. Something inside of us, it's like, well, I worked for that. That's why I got an A. That person got a C. They got a C because they did not work as hard as I did. Or we get a promotion at work. We think, well, of course I got a promotion at work. I work harder than anyone else here. We get a bonus from work. Like, you know what? I should have gotten a bigger bonus. As valuable as I am to this company, right? These are the kind of things that go on in our, in our, our hearts. Or, or, or we, we see a homeless person on the street, and we're like, why don't they work hard? Get a job. Get off the street, right? These are some of the things that go on in our hearts as we think about what we have and how we got that. I know that because my own heart has those kinds of conversations going on. Israel will be prone to this knee-jerk reaction as well. God knows when they get into the land that's been given to them by grace that they will begin to think it's because they're better than the Canaanites, that they've been given this promised land. And so God, through Moses, prepares them for that moment when that kind of thinking is going to creep up into their heart. So verse 4 he begins by telling them something they should not be thinking and something they should be thinking. So he says, verse 4, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So he gives them something to think and something not to think. So what not to think, don't think that it's that you're better than the Canaanites. Don't think that your righteousness, that your uh, ethics or your religion or your loving, giving, what, whatever, but that's not why you've been given this promised land. And he wants to, them to be uh, thinking about what, what they're thinking in their very heart. Not their humble persona that everyone knows we should portray, portray, right? Like most of us know that people that portray pridefulness on the outside, it's really off-putting. It's not good for your relationships, not going to help you move forward. So make sure outwardly you appear humble. But he's not just talking about some sort of persona. He's talking about inwardly. He's like, don't say in your heart. That's the inmost place of the human being. He's saying, in your heart, don't think it's your righteousness that got you this land. Now, again, we said this multiple times. It's showing us the pervasiveness of God's rule and reign. He's not just interested in externals. He's interested in having rule and reign over your very heart. We saw that in Deuteronomy 5 when we looked at the Ten Commandments. He says, don't covet. That's the 10th commandment. That's an internal thing. That's a a thinking and envying and desiring something that someone else has. That's an internal thing. And God's saying, I want to rule and reign over your heart. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart. So yet again, he's, he's talking about the heart. And then here he says, don't think in your heart that it's because of your righteousness that you've been given this land. Again, this is a tendency that we all have. I, I remember the first time this really, uh, was, I was made aware of it. Of course, it wasn't my own sin. It was someone else's. We're much, much better at looking at the sins of others than our own. Uh, I, I had a, a college student that was in my college ministry when I first was a college pastor back in, uh, in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And 
So I'm working with this kid. This kid has come out of drugs and alcohol, uh, was down, so far down that he was basically living in, in a shed beside someone's house, and that someone didn't even know he was living in their shed, okay? So he's homeless, he's a drug addict. Well, he starts coming to a Bible study. He hears about the gospel. He becomes a Christian. He receives forgiveness. And I mean, Christ is transforming his life like that. I mean, it was amazing. It doesn't always happen that quickly, but for Caleb, the student, it absolutely was almost like overnight. He had a freedom from, from drugs and alcohol and was, had a new life and was just growing like crazy. It was awesome. He got baptized. He shared his testimony. The church was just entering into a celebration of God's work and his grace in this person's life. And so after a, a few months of Caleb being a part uh, of, of our um, a ministry, I remember having a conversation with him where he was talking about a friend of his who was a drug addict, and he was trying to get that friend to come out of drugs and to turn to Christ, and he said to me, I just can't believe that this guy is acting like this. <laughs> and it was just like this moment where I go, whoa, <laughs> Caleb, that was you like three months ago. But somehow, even though the grace of the gospel had totally transformed his life, he was saying in his heart somehow that he had it together. A few months later, I get a call from Caleb. He sounds kind of shaky. I'm like, what's up, man? Are you okay? He's like, well, I'm struggling. I am circling a bar that I used to go to. I'm like walking around on the sidewalk. Everything in me wants to go into this bar and drink. Would you please pray for me? And he yet again knew it was the grace of the gospel that was sustaining him supernaturally in his recovery. He's now in Turkey as a missionary. He's doing good, okay? Uh, but it, it was one of those first times when I realized it's so easy for us to begin to think, I'm the one doing this. This righteousness or this success or whatever it is that we're, we're seeing that's good in our lives, I'm doing this. And then when we have something bad... That happens. We don't blame ourselves. We say, oh, I was having a bad day. Oh, I'm a victim of, this, of the circumstances, right? And we do this thing in our heart that, that justifies our sin and it takes credit for the righteousness. So he's saying, don't think that. Don't think it was your righteousness that got you this, uh, this promised land. He, he says he does want them to think that it's the Canaanites' wickedness that is the result of their judgment, right? That's why they're getting judged. They deserve what they're getting. God is being righteous as he delivers this judgment. He's had mercy on them literally for centuries. He's been holding back. They've been wicked. That means they've been godless. That means they've been living in only the horizontal. They haven't been living unto the one true God. And he's saying they deserve the judgment that they're being Given. And part of why he says that is because he wants Israel to, to value holiness. That God's calling them to righteousness. That their response to the grace of the gift given them in, this, in the promised land and in, in this covenant is that they re respond with holy living. Now he goes on. He tells them some more things to think and not think. He, he, he recaps some of that uh, that I've just said. Verse 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. Okay, that's just recap what we just said. And, then he adds to it, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
So he wants them also to think God is faithful. God is faithful, right? Don't think it's your righteousness that's getting you into this promised land. Don't do think that it is the unrighteousness of the Canaanites that's deserving judgment. And do think that God is faithful. He is faithful to keep his promise. And he mentions the promise made to Abraham. Now, this is 500 years before the people of Israel go in to take the promised land. This is 500 years before those people that are hearing this Deuteronomy sermon have even been born. He says, this is how much this is grace. God's making good on a promise he made to Abraham 500 years before you. God is faithful. The reason they're going into the promised land has everything to do with God and very little or nothing to do with them. He has made a promise, and he's making good on the promise. He adds an additional thing to think and recap some of what we've talked about. Verse 6 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you're a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So another thing he wants them to think, he, he wants them to think, you're just as worthy of wrath and punishment and judgment as the Canaanites. He wants them to understand that. He wants them to know that, to think that. They're just as worthy of judgment as the Canaanites. The same righteous, just anger that God's pouring out on the Canaanites, they deserve that same anger. So don't think it's your righteousness that earned your place in the promised land. Do think that God is faithful. Do think that you deserve the same judgment and wrath that the Canaanites are getting. Now, I'm sure... Those Israelites, as they're hearing Moses say that, they're going, oh, come on, Moses. Moses. Come on. You, you, you know, you're a little over the top. Right? These preacher types, this is what they do. right? He's going on and on about wrath of God and judgment. I mean, we don't worship idols like the Canaanites. We're not immoral like them. They're bad. We're not that bad. Now, some of you do the same thing to me, right? Oh, Pastor Robert, all this talk about sin and how we're sinners and we're not just people that commit sin, but we have a condition of sin and we are in, in desperation and we need a savior. I mean, yeah, I get that to some degree, but that's a little over the top. But I like the music at Mercy House, so I keep putting up with Pastor Robert, right? That's not biblical thinking. If you're thinking that your relationship with God comes out of a kind of a 50-50 agreement where God gives you 50% and then you meet him in the middle and you're like, I've got something to bring to the table. Even if you're thinking 1%, 99%, it's not biblical thinking. God brings 100% of what's required for you to have a relationship with him. And it's, it's what he wants those Israelites to to understand they wouldn't have that land, they wouldn't have the dwelling uh, uh, with them of God. If it wasn't for God, the covenant rests on God and God alone. So in order to remind them of how bad they are, 
he, he, he retells a story. He says in verse 9, When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written on the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of assembly. And at the end of the 40 days and the 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Now, this has to be one of the most, all, you know, the all-time high for Moses as he thinks about his life. And here he is, he's, he's recounting, this is after 40 years, and he's thinking back to this moment. And this moment is following another moment where they are all standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. And they're seeing the cloud and fire descend on that mountain. They're hearing something that sounds like a trumpet that's blowing. They hear the voice of God inviting them into covenant with them. They hear the Ten Commandments, and the people say, yes, we're signing on. We want to be in this covenant. We're going to follow these Ten Commandments. And then Moses says, or God says, okay, Moses, come on up and get the Ten Commandments. And so Moses leaves, and for 40 days, he's up there on top of Mount Sinai, and he's receiving the Ten Commandments on these two stones, and they are symbolic of the covenant that they're, they're making with God. Talk about a conference high, right? Moses is being supernaturally sustained for 40 days. Now, you can go without food for 40 days, but you cannot go without water. And so he's being supernaturally sustained by God for 40 days. Now, the reason that God's doing that, or at least in part, is he's letting Moses know this covenant will have to be supernaturally sustained. You will not be doing this in your own strength, Israel. You will be doing this by grace. I will be pouring out grace. This is how you will be able to sustain this covenant. Now, while he's having the high of his life with God, what's going on downstairs at the foot of the mountain that the people are getting impatient. And they're saying, wow, it's been 40 days. This guy Moses, I don't know if we can trust him. I, I think we need to do something about this. They go to his brother Aaron, who's, a, who's the, the high priest, and says, hey, Aaron, would, would you uh, help us to start worshiping a new God? Another God, a God that's more accessible, a God that doesn't, doesn't stay quiet for 40 days. We need a God that we can really uh, have at our disposal. And so let's do this. Let's take all the, the, this gold that we've gotten from Egypt that was given to us as gifts. So let's melt this down, make a golden calf out of it, and then let's worship the golden calf. Aaron, what do you think? And Aaron's like, okay. <laughs> so they make a golden calf. Now that took some time, melting down all the gold, creating this, this idol, and they start having a Canaanite slash Egyptian worship service. And it's, a, a, it's food, it's an orgy, it's, it's this, this ancient worship type fertility cult ritual thing going on there. All while Moses is up on top of the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the sign of the covenant that God, the God who's loved them with a one-way, unconditional love has made and they even say to the calf, they say, you are the one who brought us out of Egypt. No one else. Now, Moses tells his, his experience. While that's going on down there, and Moses is up on top of Sinai, and he's experiencing this 40-day unbelievable experience, he says this in verse 12, The Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from there, from here, 
For your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. So God knows what's going on. Moses doesn't know what's going on. God knows what's going on. And after this 40-day sort of reaffirming of the covenant and giving him these signs of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, he says, hey, Moses, your people, your people, Moses, they're worshiping a metal image down there. I, I'm sure Moses was like, no, no way. There's no way. No way those people that stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard your voice and saw the fire and heard the trumpet, there's no, there's no way. But then what God says next is even more concerning, right? Verse 13, furthermore, the Lord said to me, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So still, Moses is up on Sinai having this conversation with God. Except it's pretty much one way. Like God's saying, Moses, it's your people. I'm done. I'm starting over. He's done it before. He started over with Noah. He started over with Abraham. I've got all the time in the world. I'm God. I'll just start fresh. I'll start with you. And I'll bring a family out of you and out of that family and nation. And we'll just you know, set this thing aside for 500 years and we'll just restart, right? Let's reset this thing. Still, I don't think Moses believes that it's possible that they could have walked away from God. And so he doesn't really say anything, at least not in the text, to God. And he goes down. And he describes his experience as he went down the mountain. So I turned and I came down, verse 15, from the mountain. And the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You'd made yourself a golden calf. You turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets. I threw them out of my two hands and I broke them before your eyes. I would argue this is the darkest moment in the history of Israel. And they've had, they have some dark moments. This is a dark, dark moment. God's telling Moses, I'm done. I'm done with these people. Right? And he's saying, I'm starting over. And Moses goes down he's to see it for himself. He's, he's coming out of the ultimate camp or conference high. He's been dwelling in the presence of God. Talk about a contrast. He goes from being in the presence of God and being sustained for 40 days supernaturally down to see his people worshiping a golden calf. And here he's holding the concrete symbols of the covenant, and he gets so angry. And we know Moses has, you know, he has some issues with anger, right? The reason he had to flee Egypt the first time is he got mad at an Egyptian and he killed him. The reason that he got in trouble with God and won't be able to go actually into the promised land is because he got really angry with the people of God and he hit a rock and brought water forth from it instead of speaking to it. So it's, you know, part of, part of something he's working through, right? And so in his anger, I, you know, it's hard to believe he got this angry, but, but he took the very Ten Commandments and he broke them. And it's an incredibly dark moment because not only is God angry at them, Moses is angry at them. And he's their advocate. He's the one who stands in between them and God. 
And it looks, at least in that moment, like he's done too. And they are without an advocate. And honestly, in this story, the Israelites are reminded they're not as bad as the Canaanites. They're actually worse. They have special revelation from God. They have Moses. Moses, their prophet, who speaks the word of God to them. Canaanites didn't have Moses. Moses, their priest, who provides for them the sacrificial system so that they could be forgiven of their sins through the shedding of the blood of the animals offered in sacrifice. Canaanites didn't have that. Israel had that. And they are rejecting the very God who rescued them out of Egypt by grace. They, ha they have no advocate in that moment. Now, there's a lot of, of conversations about advocacy in our uh, our, our Pioneer Valley and on campuses is pretty awesome, right? It's so needed. It's so important that people are advocating for those who can't advocate for themselves oftentimes. Advocacy for sex slaves, the Freedom Cafe. Maybe you've been there. It's in the backside of First Baptist. They take all of their proceeds and, and they use those proceeds to help ministries that are helping women that are coming out of sex slavery and finding uh, a new life in Christ. They're advocates for the homeless. Folks that are struggling with, 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 with uh, poverty, they're, they're struggling with, oftentimes with drug and alcohol issues, mental health issues, and they, they can't stand up for themselves. They need advocates to come in and to care for them. Advocates uh, for people oppressed by racism, for people oppressed by sexism, people oppressed by ageism. All, all those are beautiful. But I haven't heard of many people that, that say, I'm going to advocate for people that are getting what they deserve. Right? Not many advocacy programs for that. But that is exactly what you're going to see right here in this text. Moses, who's really mad, is going to be merciful. And here's what he does. Verse 18. I lay prostrate before the Lord as before. Forty days... And 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. It's not the only time that Moses intercedes for Israel. He stands between Israel and God, and God is righteous. He is perfect. He is just in his delivering of punishment, of delivering wrath. But he's also a God who loves Israel with an unconditional, steadfast, hesed, covenant love. And so Moses stands, or actually lies prostrate before that God, and he asks that God to relent, to hold back deserved punishment. That's called mercy. He's asking him to give them mercy, and he listens to Moses, and he relents. Now, what's going on here? These are the kind of texts in the Old Testament. We read that, and we're like, I just don't know what to do with that. Is God, does God have an anger problem? Does God just get up grumpy? And he, he, was, he was loving and merciful yesterday, but today he, he's just, he, he, he needs a cup of coffee or something. Like, what, what is his deal? Like, why is he getting so... Anyway, no, what's happening here is, is, is God is bringing about a situation 
that can display, it can reveal a pattern, a type. That type is the type of the intercessor. Where Moses stands between Israel and God as an advocate, as an intercessor. And based on the intercessory work that that he's doing, he gives them mercy. Because Moses is basically pointing forward to Jesus. He's a type that points forward to Christ, the ultimate intercessor. When we think about this moment where a just and holy God has every right to deliver punishment against the Canaanites and the Israelites. And, and God the Father is like, absolutely, that this, ha- this needs to happen, right? God the Son is, yes, absolutely, this is, this is just and right. God the Spirit is, yes, this is just, this is absolutely right. But God is also saying, we want to give them mercy. God the Father is saying, I I want to give them mercy. I love them. Even though they're sinners and they deserve punishment, I love them. God the Son is saying, yes, I love them. God the Spirit is saying, I love them. And so God the Father says, because I love them, I'm going to send God the Son to come down and to die in the place of sinners. And God the Spirit is going to take that salvation bought and paid for by the Son's own death and deliver it, apply it to sinners like you and me. And the only way that can happen is through the intercessory death of Jesus. That's what's happening at the cross. That's what's happening at the cross, is that Christ is interceding for us. Uh, Hebrews 7 speaks of Jesus. Verse 24 says, He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. So he's saying Jesus intercedes for us through his death on the cross, and he's continuing to intercede day in and day out. We don't just need intercession on one particular occasion where we become a Christian. We need intercession ongoing. And God's grace poured out through Christ on us gives us this right to be in relationship with God. It's all grace. It's not partly us and partly Him. It's 100% Him. And except by the grace of God, we wouldn't be able to have a relationship with God, be reconciled with God. And that intercession will go on throughout eternity. I've often likened it to an ongoing intravenous drip of grace. When we become a Christian, we're, we're plugging in the, the IV of grace. And, and we don't have that for just a couple of days and then pull it out and go, okay, I'm good now. Now it's based on my own righteousness. No, we need, we need more grace. We open up that IV through faith and more grace and more grace and more grace and more grace and we're going to have so much grace, it's actually going to sustain us more than 40 days like Moses. It's going to sustain us for an eternity. It's by grace. The only thing different between the Israelites and the Canaanites is the Israelites had an intercessor. And that was Moses. And as Scripture tells us, oh, there's one who's better than Moses. And it's Jesus. 
If you've never put your trust, your faith, wholeheartedly in Christ alone for forgiveness of sin and for a relationship with God through faith, then do it today. Do it today. And I say Christ alone. I use that on purpose because I don't want you to think, well, it's 50% Christ and 50% me. No, you're trusting in 100% grace. Christ alone. We sang it in the second song, right? In Christ alone. Right? That's what we were singing when we said that. You may not realize that, but that's what we were singing. It's 100% grace. This is what you trust in. Because if you've never done that before, God may be calling you this morning into faith in Christ. Right? Trust in Him. Cry out to Him, even now, in your heart, and ask Him to forgive you and bring you into relationship with Him. If you're in Christ, do not think it's because of your righteousness, right? We're no different than Israelites. That stuff creeps in. We, we might think, well, but it was by grace I was saved, but what happened to me this week, that was my righteousness. No, you don't take a breath without grace. You don't have a brain without grace. You, you're not in a class except by grace. You, you don't have the power and the strength to work except by grace. This, this, is, this is by grace. Do not think. It is because of your righteousness that you have what you have. Don't think that your righteousness is some kind of currency that you use with God where, where, where you, you, you can sort of manipulate him and say, well, if I do this, you do that. No. It's by grace. It's by grace. Do think that God is faithful. God is faithful. That even though you and I, we are unfaithful. If we're honest, we, we have to confess. We are immoral idol worshipers. That's our default. And it, God loved us anyway. He gave us grace through the cross, through the intercessory work of Jesus. So as we reflect on that, may, may that cause us to love and worship Jesus, right? Like, man, the good news of the gospel is really good. It's not a 50-50 split. It's grace alone, in Christ alone. And by God's grace, if you're a believer in Christ, you've come to understand that. And so we, you get to come into this place and worship the one true God through Christ alone. We we're reminded of that every time we come to this table, are we not? We think of Jesus with his disciples. On the night and he, he's being betrayed and denied, he's, he's, he's being abandoned. If there's ever a time where, where he could have said, you know what, I'm starting over. I'm getting some new disciples next week. I am so done with you. That's not what he does. He takes bread, he blesses it, gives thanks for it, he breaks it, he gives it to those who, who their default is to be immoral, idol-worshiping Canaanites, every human being, and he gives it to them and says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I don't think that, that, that the Last Supper was a potluck, right? 
Jesus brought 50% of it. They brought 50% of it. Let's have a potluck. No. <laughs> He's the host. He's providing the main course. In the same way, he took the cup. After he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He knows that those disciples and you and me as well, we have no hope outside of the gift of grace, of forgiveness, of being washed clean of the, the punishment of sin, of, of being made free from the power of sin, all of which is by grace alone in Christ alone. He knew those disciples could never be the disciples that they needed to be except by his grace. And so he gave them grace that night and ultimately gave them grace the next day on the cross. And he is offering you grace this morning in the same way. So receive that. Receive that. If you've never received it before, receive it this morning by faith. Receive that forgiveness, that new life, and trust in his grace alone. And then live like that on into eternity. Trusting in grace alone. Supernaturally made alive, not just for 40 days, but for an eternity. Let's pray. God, this, it, it's so hard for us to get our hearts around this. We are just, we're so often not appreciating fully what you have poured out in our lives, the grace, the mercy. And yet you do it anyway, just as you did for Israel. <laughs> even though they weren't thinking rightly in their hearts, even though we're not 100% thinking rightly even this morning as we've heard a sermon about it and we're singing songs and reflecting on it, Lord. But God, you're so full of grace. And so we trust in that this morning. And grace alone provided on the cross. And so each of these, Lord, if they've received it in the last 30 seconds or they've received it previously, Lord, may we lean on that grace. As we take this bread and take this cup, receive it as the free gift that it reminds us of, Lord, and that it would, it would, it would set us free, set us free from condemnation, set us free from fear, set us free from pride. God, have mercy on us. And I know that you will because you've proved it at the cross. And we've prayed, uh, pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.